I'm going to have you do something that I don't normally do. If you will pull your Red Pew Bible out in front of you and turn to the second page 89. It's in the Gospel of John. Second page 89. John 3.16. We're in the most famous verse of the Bible this morning. And I know that the sermon note says I'm going to go to verse 21. I'm going to get hung up right on the third word of this verse. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved... That so love can mean a couple of different things in there. It can mean that he loved the world so much that he had to do something about the situation we were in. Or it can mean God loved the world in this way. Do you understand the difference between that? Rather than a quantitative amount, it's a qualitative statement. How did he go about loving the people in the world? Those of you who have been in my Wednesday night Bible study will know that I call this a suitcase. That you have a suitcase in the meaning and you have to open it up and sort of unpack what that word means. Otherwise, nothing really makes sense. For God so loved. And I'm going to focus on the reason he came and why it had to be this thing, the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him might, have not, might not perish but have eternal life. Why is that what we're talking about? A lot of people would say it this way. That, that, G, that God hates sin and has to punishment and somehow Jesus kind of got in the middle of that and died on the cross and then we get to go live in heaven forever with him. Is that the gospel? Kind of. It's nearby the gospel. It's kind of the gospel. But the problem is, is sin isn't actually the human problem. Sin is a symptom of the human problem. And now I've got your attention because you've heard me say sin isn't actually the problem. The problem is idolatry. And you're going, wait. We don't have little idols in our houses the way they did in the first century. No, what is an idol? If I'm listening to the biblical definition of what an idol is, what's an idol? A false god, that's part of it. Something, something, you, give, something you worship or a whole lot of attention to. Okay, the reason why false god is part of it is the biblical translation of the word they use for idol is a not god so what what's the difference between an idol and god one's not god and one is idolatry then is worshiping something that isn't god as though it were Now, do we have little idolatries in our own world today? Maybe we don't form little idols and we don't have little alcoves in them and give little pinches of incense to them. But if I were to say money, sex, and power in our world today, how many people do you know worship one, one, two, or all three of those things? And how... 
And I'm not just, I'm not just picking on those people out there. I'm picking on me because I've exchanged, this is Romans 1, about verse 20, 25. It calls idolatry the exchanging of the truth for a lie. In worship, we call that calling something that's not God, God. And I want to read to you a little scripture just to get the point. I'm going to read about 20 verses of Isaiah 44 for you so that you know how much, um, how much somebody caught in this situation isn't to be judged but pitied because they're trapped. Okay? Here we are. This is Isaiah 44 starting in... Verse 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last, and there is no other God who is like me. Who, will, who is like me? Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him come and do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. Do not tremble. Don't be afraid. Do, do I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You were my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one like me. How foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God? an idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced, along with all these craftsmen, these mere humans, who claim they can make a god. They may all stand together, but they will all stand in terror and shame. The blackness stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding it and shaping it with all his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint." Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it, and he works it with a chisel and a plane, and he carves into it a human figure, and he gives it human beauty, and he puts it in a little shrine. How does he do this? He cuts down cedars and selects cypress and oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished, and then he uses part of the wood to make a fire, and with it he warms himself and bakes his bread, and then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it to make himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm and says, ah, the fire feels good. And then he takes what's left and he makes his god a carved idol and he falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying, rescue me, he says, you are my god. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why, it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for my heat and used it to bake my bread. How can the rest of it be a god? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that he can't, that can't help him at all. You can't, yet he cannot bring himself to ask. Is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? See, I, the problem with idolatry is that it's insidious along the path. If you go to Genesis 3, 
where Adam and Eve are told, if you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Although the Hebrew really is, surely dying, you will die. Let me, let me say that again. Surely dying, you will die. If you, take, if you take on the ability to judge and to be God and to form your own gods and all that, that's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is really doing is, is the right to say this is right and this is wrong and to be the judge. If you do that, what you're doing is you're exchanging the truth, which is you're not a God and you don't know what to judge, for, the, for your ability to judge others or to be knowledgeable. Now, this strikes home with me. Some of you know me as a person that likes to know stuff. But liking to know stuff isn't to be worshipped. The Lord God is to be worshipped. And, and that's the first little idolatry. Then dying, you will surely die. Let me explain that to you. How many of you have aches and pains? Not you. Well done. <laughs> I, have, I have enough aches and pains I can share. That's what it means to be dying, you will surely die. How many of you are not in your glory days? That's what it means. Surely dying, you will die. But idolatry sets up this spot where we exchange the truth for a lie, where we worship something. And the line can be really, really tight and thin sometimes. Like I said last week, we have this lowercase t hanging in front. I mean, a cross. Do we worship the cross? No. Do we worship the one who went to the cross for us? Yes. That's sort of a fine line in our imagination sometimes. Can you see what I'm saying? That sometimes we, oh, the, wor- or the wonders of the cross, and people on the outside say, well, they're worshiping a cross. When we uh, and us, when we say, oh, the wondrous cross, are worshiping the, the act of salvation that Jesus gave us on the cross, but we don't explain that very well. And sometimes people come amongst us and have that idolatry or that they see it as idolatry among us. Are you aware of that? That people sort of don't understand everything they see? I know, I know you're not like that. You understand every single thing you see in the world. No? No. Okay. So what does it mean that he died on the cross, that God so loved the world. I want to keep coming back to this. That God so loved the world that means that we need to actually understand the predicament that we were in. If sin is actually a symptom of the problem of idolatry, what happens is, is idolatry causes us to sort of lose track of our correct relationship with God because we start making up our own gods. Or, as the Israelites in the Exodus used did, they come out of Egypt and they're all excited because God has been provisional for them. And in the language of thought and image of the Egyptian world, they form a golden calf and say, look, God is like this golden calf, which is a form of provision, right? Do you understand that the Egyptians didn't actually think their, their gods had falcon heads and things like that, but that they thought their God was long seeing or, or swift and so they put a falcon head on their, on their god to sort of a shorthand for 
he could see in the future and he's fast to me? Well, in that form, what does a cow mean? Provider. Because, look, you plow your fields with, with oxen and cow and things, right? You, you, and, then, and then they have more of them. They have lots of them. And so your, provision, your provider, they were saying this, but God was so angry because they don't actually know enough to say, this is all you are, God. But they said, this is, this is the God we'll worship. And so he says, don't make an image of me. You don't know enough about who I am to constrain me down into that image of a cow. Does that explain the Exodus golden calf incident just a little bit to you? But what's it do that surely dying you will die that as, we, as what we did technically when, when the humans took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they gave up their role in the world, which was to be God's image bearers, his representatives in the world, to be something less. And now some of you might not be really familiar with some of this language, but the stoichia, or the powers, or the dark powers of the world. Have any of you ever heard any of this language? The idols, the powers behind the idols, demons, all these things all get lumped into this world. Stoichia, who had no power over us, but... We left our spot and exchanged our rightful place for something less. And those things that didn't have any power say, thank you very much. We can make you slaves to us. We will be happy to do that. Surely dying, you will die. And the consequences of idolatry is death and sin. Surely dying, you will die. Now let's look at the cross as a slightly different thing than just he paid the penalty for my sin and God was angry. No, God saw his people enslaved to death and he came to the cross to die on the cross to conquer death and pay the penalty for sins. Do you see how that's slightly different? If we think he only took care of the price for sin, then suddenly we start to think of God as kind of harsh. But if the only way to conquer death was to somebody that had the power to conquer death come and pay the price for death and to conquer it and, and do that and pay the price for sin, then the gospel starts to be much bigger, doesn't it? It also isn't only about us going to heaven forever. It is about that. Let me, let, me, let me say that. It is about that. But the thing about the cross and him conquering death is that he has come that we might have life and have it to the full, not later at some later time, but when you come to Jesus that you might live right now. And what God would say is life and life to the full is a life that is not enslaved to bad relationship decisions and all, the, and all the death that comes with that in your life, but to be his representative again, to be his image bearer, to be his royal priesthood. To be in right relationship with him, the world, and those around you. Let me, let me shorthand that just a little second. So how many of you are aware that your, best, your worst relationship on earth is probably fairly indicative of your relationship with God? 
Let me say that again. If you've got somebody that you think it's okay to treat badly, there's something wrong in your relationship with God. Do you know why? Because they, God made them too. And let's say for a second that I've got a problem in my relationship with God. Now, I didn't talk this over with Karen, but Karen and I have talked this over specifically at other times. If I've got a problem in my relationship with God and then I get into a relationship with Karen, how, is that going to be separate from my relationship with God? If I've got something wrong and, and God hasn't started to inform his love of the world and its people into me, then what's going to happen in my relationship with my spouse or my significant other or anybody else? At some point, that little crack or that little mistake is going to work its way in. And now let's say for a second that Karen and I are married and we've got a problem because I don't honor her correctly because God has done this thing, right? You understand how this works, that the foundation is the relationship with God and I've got a crack in that foundation and then you put sheetrock and and, and, and stud walls on top of a cracked foundation, what happens to the sheetrock and, and the stud walls? It cracks right along with the foundation. But, but then, because none of us have a perfect relationship with God, then Karen and I have to work out our problems. I'm just doing this so that you'll know that this is how this is for you too, right? No, I'm not actually exp- exposing Karen to her problems. And then you have kids, but you've got a problem in your relationship with God and you've got a problem in your relationship with your spouse and then you add other pressure on. <laughs> right? You've got a cracked foundation, you've got cracks in the walls, but now it's raining and the wind is blowing really hard. You're going to have problems, aren't you? Let's say for a second, everything is rosy in your house. How many of you have perfect familial relationships? Okay, but let's say you're normal and you don't have perfect familial relationships. How do you then interact in the world and all the pressures that that brings into the relationships? So we've got to focus on getting this idolatry fixed in us where we pay attention to the relationship that God has and then we don't exchange the truth for a lie for God so loved the world. He loved the world this way, so much so that we had a problem and he came to fix it because he knew we were enslaved and without any possibility. It's in this way that Golgotha, the hill of the skull, okay, I'm going to do this. Do you know who the hill of the skull is really named after? Goliath, the tradition holds that they put Goliath's skull there. Golgotha, the hill of the skull. Goliath was well known as the troubler of Israel. What did he do? He yelled blasphemous things and everything and scared the people of Israel out of the provision that God had for them into cowering behind something that was not worth cowering behind. Jesus went to the cross to deal with the troubler of Israel, which wasn't really Goliath, but idolatry and sin. Not just the troubler of Israel, the troubler of 
you and me and everybody between here and there and everywhere. If I'm channeling my Dr. Seuss. So what's the answer? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not just for this future thing in heaven, but that our relationships could be right here and we could be a royal priesthood. Now, I understand that if we're in North America, the use of the word royal brings people on its edge because we revolted to make sure that we didn't have royals. Didn't we? Isn't that what the whole Revolutionary War was over? Right? A bad king. But what's the solution for bad kingship? Is it to scrap the whole thing the way the Americans do? Or is it to get a good king? Because I would, I would like to say that while democracy is well, well stated as a better form of government than any of the others, it's also not so awesome. Is, I mean, it's, it's awesome, except for when it doesn't work right. But the solution for bad kingship isn't to get rid of the idea of kingship. It's to get the right king. And in North America, I could say that if I were to bring up the term priesthood right now, we could say there's been some problems with human priesthoods. But the solution is exactly the same. Not to get rid of the idea of priesthood, but to get the right high priest. Now we're talking about Jesus, our king and our priest. That's quite a different thought now. Now we have the truth, a good king and a good priest, and we get to follow him, and he leads us into better relationships, first with God, by removing the barriers necessary so that we can have that relationship, and then putting his spirit inside us because the cross not only removed death and conquered death, but it cleansed the house for his spirit to come into. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But not just life up there in the clouds, right now. Let's do that. Let's remember that the gospel isn't about some pie-in-the-sky, future-only thing. The reason why we need to remember that is why. Well, I, I, you know, I, just, I accepted Jesus, but nothing changed. No, everything changed. Everything changes with Jesus. Everything. Not just your future, but your right now. Let's do that. Let's live into that for God so loved the world. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for taking care of the real problem, not just treating symptoms in us, but treating the problem. And the problem was that we die as a consequence of our idolatry. Solve in us that, Lord Jesus, that we might follow you in integrity and love. In your precious name, amen.